reading of the scriptures from Isaiah chapter 52 and verses 7 to 12. I invite your reverent attention to the public reading of God's holy and living word. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. One of the uh, problems uh, for the preacher, the book of Isaiah is uh, dealing with the constancy of the repetition. It's like the same uh, message again and again and again. I kind of wonder, so how do I do with uh, about the fourth again? But it, it, it does, I think, uh, remind us of how important repetition is. Because we're fallen creatures, we have a way of getting stuck and a manner of thought, a manner of life that perhaps is not healthy. And so God, in many ways, is like a loving parent. He reminds his children over and over and over again to do these things and keep doing these things and don't let up doing these things. And so we come uh, again to the constancy of the message that uh, we are to leave the old creation, uh, again, the new exodus uh, to our eternal home just as Israel was to leave Babylon and return to Jerusalem. Uh, our summons in a spiritual sense. They were to leave physically, but you and I are the spiritual people of God. We are to leave the world in which we live and all that it means, all of its haunts, all of its desires, and begin to move uh, to uh, the heavenly city, to the new Jerusalem in heaven. The text is uh, the good news of the gospel, reminded of what the gospel is, of what God has done. And that good news has a corresponding duty. In this case, we're to leave, we're to, we're to move, uh, we're to shed the old and embrace uh, the journey before us. Uh, so again, in our text, verses 7 to 10 is, it's the good news of the provision of God in the victory of what God has done. In the case of Israel, he's defeated Babylon so that they can return home. Uh, and then final two verses of our paragraph, uh, 11 and 12, uh, God's, uh, God's provision 
provision of his grace for the duty that he set before us. Well, let's begin with the, the good news. Uh, it's captured here for us in the celebration of the news brought by a messenger. Uh, a messenger comes and he, he begins to recite good news. The, the text contains the content of the good news. Uh, it's the news of victory. And so the text declares the feet of the messenger are beautiful. It's really a figure of speech, not causing us to look at the feet of the messenger, but of the content of the message of the messenger. And the message is described in three synonyms, uh, that God is victorious and that he has accomplished peace. So in that sense, the conflict is over. Uh, God effects reconciliation so they can return home. Uh, for you and for me, he has effected reconciliation that we can be at peace with God because primarily, and in the causal sense, God has made peace for us in Jesus Christ. Great message of reconciliation. Uh, there's also uh, another effect of the message of the good news of the victory of God, and that is uh, uh, he brings happiness. The word is very interesting in the Hebrew text. It's just simple, simply the word for good. God has made good for us. I think it encompasses something of a grand sweep of our salvation that he's going to fix all wrongs. Over time, of course, and in degree, partially in this life, but uh, he will make it all right. He will make it all good. Uh, we, we struggle sometimes with that. We go through life, and sometimes we face lots of injustice. Not to worry. God will make it good. God will make it right. And God, in our hearts, will set goodness in order so that we will see the greatest of all good when we enter the heavenly city. Uh, lastly, salvation, freedom from bondage. Uh, they were slaves in Babylon like they were slaves in Egypt. Uh, God's going to set them free. Uh, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul uh, cites uh, Isaiah chapter 52 in verse 7 in the book of Romans, the 10th chapter. And if you have your New Testaments, I trust you do. Uh, book of Romans, chapter 10, the 15th verse. And how shall they preach unless they are sent, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. The Apostle Paul is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 7 in the gospel. He carries the message of the gospel. So the apostolic mission is the mission of carrying the gospel, uh, announcing the good news uh, that God has won. God has effected victory. He brings goodness to our hearts. He brings peace. He brings salvation. The distant uh, fulfillment uh, from Isaiah 52 to the New Testament is the work of Christ and what he has accomplished for us and the greatest victory of all time. Uh, the final content of the message from Isaiah, chapter 7, uh, say to Zion, your God reigns, that God rules. Uh, it's a perpetual message. In uh, the orthodoxy of the Christian church is that God is sovereign, God is on his throne, he rules and reigns supremely. Everything is an aspect of his rule and his reigning. For us as his people, it means that our God is king and that no one can dethrone him. He perpetually reigns and rules, never to be dethroned, 
never voted out of office, never needing to curry the favor of men. Our God reigns supreme. In many respects, by application, it gives, I think, in my own heart, a measure of peace. Things sometimes uh, in life seem to be chaotic, out of control, simply the reminder of the effects of the gospel that God reigns and rules. He has broken for us the bondage of captivity. Uh, New Testament synonym for this is found in the New Testament. The kingdom of God is at hand. God in his king, the Lord Christ the Messiah, has invaded earth and brought the kingdom of God to men. Something of this, I think, in the theology of the book of Romans, chapter 6 and verse 6, that he has broken the dominion of sin over his people. Uh, It's uh, our reminder of the totality of the spiritual provision for our sin. But it's also, again, a wonderful expression of the gospel that we should never lose sight of. We should never tire of the repetition of the preaching of the gospel because it means that we have been set free. It means that we are right with God by virtue of the work of Christ Uh, our substitute. It means that he has set goodness in order and that he has set eternity in our hearts that will ultimately end in our resurrection on the last day to be with God forever. It's the truth that God has won and that we're to go home to heaven. Something of this in a reminder of our culture every year, a multiple of occasions of what it means uh, to bring good news. Uh, springtime brings uh, more marathons to Oklahoma than I care really to participate in or even wonder about. Uh, marathons are named after one of the greatest victories of all time, the Battle of Marathon. And Philippides takes the message, he runs, you know what, how long? 26 miles to Athens to declare that the Greeks had won the battle. Every time there's a marathon, think of the gospel that Christ has won. He's victorious, that he reigns. We're his people, his subjects. He watches over and protects us and will defeat all of our enemies based upon his eternal victory. Uh, the, the, the messenger, the battle of Marathon, it was that you're safe. Greece is safe. Athens is safe. You and I are safe because of the work of Christ. Of course, it breaks upon us in a spiritual sense, but ultimately it will occur physically. Uh, have a dearly departed aunt that used to remind me over and over again because her uh, husband served in World War II that uh, being in the United States during the Second World War was a time of incredible excitement. Uh, motions would simply sometimes be at a high point and then at a low point. You would hear news of a distant battle being fought and you would wonder uh, the outcome. People would go to churches to pray. Again, because of the great battles of pitched warfare that was being uh, fought for, if you will, Western civilization. Then the news would come that American forces won the battle. I mean, the great story of uh, VE Day, victory in Europe, celebration. And all over New York City, people celebrating. And then VJ Day, victory in Japan. The war is over for all American forces. That men could come home, be reunited. Women could come home, serving in the military, be reunited with their families, because the battle was won. And the effects of that battle, uh, 
those great days of victory cast a shadow over our own culture this very day in light of the freedoms that we have. Well, again, you take that into the spiritual world, the greatest victory of all time, the resurrection of Christ, meaning that our entire eternity is sealed, that he will raise us up on the last day. He will never forget us, that we are his forever uh, because of the victory of the God-man one time for all time. And so in, in our text from Isaiah 52, the watchmen of the city walls are to lift up their voices and uh, shout at, at the news uh, because they will see God return to Zion and his people. Again, it's something of the celebration that you and I ought to have in our hearts every time we hear the gospel, a reminder of what God has done for us, something that we should never forget, something that we should never lose sight of. I know sometimes the repetitiveness of the book of Isaiah is a bit wearing. Certainly it is on me. But how do you get bored at the gospel? That we've been saved forever with cross. Uh, never to be taken away from us. That God will see us through to the end. Uh, and so he comforts his uh, people uh, with uh, the good news of salvation. Verses 9 and 10. Shout joyfully together. Uh, for the Lord has comforted his people, he's redeemed Jerusalem. But this word comfort, you know, is one of the major uh, themes of the prophecies of, of Isaiah, certainly that breaks out in chapter 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. We take comfort because we've been reconciled to God through the death of his son. We can take comfort that though chaos on occasion seems to govern our lives, not so with God because he is sovereign, he rules us. He will defeat all of our enemies and see us through to the end. A spiritual comfort amidst all of the vagaries of life. It's a theology of Isaiah coming into the New Testament, breaking to us, reminding us over and over and over again that nothing is out of control. That God is sovereign. He's guarding and gathering his people till the time of his choosing. Uh, my reminder of this uh, uh, is a post-Advent season. Uh, one of the things I love about Advent season are Christmas carols. And to me, their theology is just breathtaking. So, you know, we sing hymns like Joy to the World. The Lord has come. For us, he's come. He's won us to himself. Granted to us the great spirit of God to watch over us in our journey. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. That's the theology of Isaiah 52. Uh, great carols that we sing at Christmas. God rest ye merry gentlemen. Because of the good news of the gospel uh, and all that it means to God's people. Uh, in our case, of course, Jerusalem is geographically displaced to heaven uh, where uh, the enemies of the gospel cannot get at it, where it rules and reigns supreme. And our citizenship, as you know, is there, uh, meaning that it will come for us, and nothing can stop it. Uh, we are members of that city because of the resurrection of Christ, greatest event of all time. Uh, nothing will ever surpass the greatness of that event and all that it means for the people of God. And one of the outcomes of that that is going to be pressed upon uh, God's Old Testament people is that our allegiance is transferred 
from this world to the world to come. And their allegiance was to be transferred from Babylon uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, that really is to become the defining reality of our lives. Uh, well, this message of grace, the good news of the gospel, uh, that God has uh, broken the power of Babylon, in our case, God has broken the dominion of sin, uh, has a corresponding duty. And if you read the scriptures a lot, as I'm sure you do, you read everywhere the grace of God, and eventually in that immediate context, you will read of the duty of God's people. If God is gracious to his people, and he is, and God saves them at the entire cost paid by himself, and he has done that, our duty is to serve him and to follow him. In the case of Israel, verses 11 and 12, uh, Isaiah chapter 52, they are to leave Babylon and uh, return home. Uh, depart, depart. Go out from there. Those are imperatives, commandments to leave. They were not to stay. Uh, they are to leave Babylon further defined by not touching what is unclean and to purify themselves, again, I think, uh, contextually defined in the sense of leaving idolatry uh, and returning to Jerusalem. The idolatry that so characterized uh, the nation of Babylon. Uh, the address is to the ones carrying the vessels of the Lord we would translate that immediately as a reference to the priest, but I take it as a figure of speech referencing all of the people of God. Uh, the priest just simply being a part for the whole. Uh, as you know, the vessels uh, were confiscated by Nebuchadnezzar, uh, taken back to Babylon. Uh, Cyrus permits the nation to return and to return with those vessels. It's a reminder that they are to go back and reestablish the cultus re-engage the sacrificial system, re-establish again uh, the temple of God and uh, worship God. Uh, it's an implied commission, I think, from Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, uh, that they were to be a priestly nation, uh, speaking to spiritual recovery. Historically, uh, we know from Ezra and Nehemiah that uh, whatever spiritual revival there was in the return is really highly questionable. And sadly, only a minority left. And that's really one of the reasons there's this constant repetition. Uh, very few left. They had just simply grown comfortable in their way of life. And you and I, even as Christians, fall into that sometimes, do we not? We get comfortable with a certain pattern of our lives. And we don't like to be interrupted, do we? And the repetition of Scripture breaks upon us to remind us. Uh, be very careful about the patterns of our lives, certainly if they are out of step with Scripture. Uh, and if they disengage from our spiritual duties, as Israel certainly did by remaining in Babylon. Uh, so it's our reminder that 
we have been constituted by God in the new birth as his priests. Let's look at a text that confirms that. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6. And he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. That's an allusion to Exodus 19.6. It's an allusion to the theology that the priests were to leave Babylon to go back to Jerusalem. It breaks upon all of us as Christians. Uh, in, in Grace Bible Church, there are not a few priests that serve here. Every one of us are priests. All of us serve in the manner in which God has gifted us. And we're, we're, we're to engage uh, the holiness of God, the majesty of God as we serve him uh, as priests. One of the reasons we know that this reality of leaving Babylon breaks upon the church is the apostles cite this text with just such a duty. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 17. It'd be easy, wouldn't it, if this was just a history lesson. Leave Babylon, go to Israel, that's the end. Uh, herein endeth the history lesson. Let's uh, all return to our daily lives. No, it breaks upon us as Christians. We're to leave too. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. Paul cites his text. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. The context is a separation that Paul is enjoining upon them, not geographic separation like Israel, but a more escalated separation from ungodliness that was in the world. Uh, like Israel of old, we are to separate ourselves uh, from the ungodliness that is in this world. So that like Israel of old, the gospel has a duty of separation. We leave the old in light of the new. Uh, Paul is writing a church that is in danger of compromising their faith. And that's why Paul cites Isaiah chapter 52. He says, leave it. Touch nothing that is unclean. Uh, he's telling them to stop acting like the ungodly. So it's a spiritual separation versus a geographic separation. Uh, in Israel, this was expressed by remaining in Babylon and in the church. It was failing to break with participating with the ungodly lifestyle of unbelievers. Perhaps expressed in a text that you're familiar with, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership hath righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship hath light with darkness? We cite that text a lot in regard to one of the great institutions of civilization, do we not? Marriage. Now, one of the duties of Christians is they, they can marry all types and stripes and colors of people, but they are forbidden to marry those outside the tribe of the faith. They cannot marry in Christians. And this text is often cited as a proof text for that. Uh, by way of application, but it goes way beyond marriage. Uh, again, I think touching the reality of participating in the lifestyle of, of uh, the ungodly. We're to leave it. We're to separate from it. We're to come out from it. Uh, it's also interesting contextually uh, that Paul writes these words because the church in Corinth 
is in danger of rejecting him for false apostles. Perhaps there's an application there that we were to leave uh, the heresies of the world in which we live. Uh, those doctrines that add to Christ or those doctrines that take away from Christ, we're to leave them. We're to displace geographically from churches that uh, hold to false doctrines. It's one of the reasons the 2 Corinthians is written, that they're to leave the false and re-engage the Apostle Paul as one appointed by God as a true apostle. So that theology matters. One of the reasons I know that our culture is steeped in the opposite is that we're almost taught as Christians to reject theology. It divides people. It's too hard. Let's just all be at peace. Again, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians is joining exactly the opposite. Theology matters. Leave the false teachers and return to me. Be reconciled to God by embracing me as a true apostle. We would that we would flee false doctrine and false conduct in our culture. Sadly, we embrace it. But you and I are to be different. We're the priests of God. We're to leave the spiritual and embrace that which is enjoined to us by Holy Scripture. It's the old refrain, is that we live in the world, but we're not of the world. We learn to break off certain relationships certain practices uh, we can no longer engage in because of uh, who we are in the grace of God. Uh, something of this New Testament theology, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 20. Paul says, you have been uh, bought uh, with a price, therefore glorify God in your bodies. Bought with a price, the cross the resurrection, and therefore your entire life is to be engaged by glorifying God in your body, leaving the old, embracing the new, a standard of conduct uh, breaking upon us. Uh, this sense of duty is compounded for us in Isaiah uh, again to Verse 10, uh, leave, leave the city, leave the old. Verse 11, depart, go out from there, uh, touch nothing unclean, get out from the midst of her, purify yourselves. You who carry the vessels of the Lord, uh, picked up as you know. Another repetitive verse that I've cited on a number of occasions uh, in going through uh, the prophecy of Isaiah. Uh, because John the Apostle cites this very text in Revelation chapter 18, in verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her sin, and that you may not receive of her plagues. John is alluding to Isaiah 52. Isaiah tells the nation to get out of Babylon. He is now, in the words of uh, John, uh, he's telling Christians, professing Christians, to get out of spiritual Babylon to leave. Because if they don't, uh, they will suffer the destruction that God will rain upon spiritual Babylon. So it's a warning text uh, to break off a relationship that you ought not to engage in, to break off conduct that you ought not to be engaging in, 
Uh, because to participate in spiritual Babylon means to suffer the judgment that God will reign upon spiritual Babylon in the world in which we live. So again, John using the theology of the Old Testament Isaiah to warn the church to get out of spiritual Babylon, to get out of town, to move towards the heavenly city. Uh, it's interesting that uh, uh, Isaiah, the prophet calling the nation, John 18, 4, it's a voice from heaven, all the more intense. God is speaking. If you're engaging in certain types of conducts and doing things that you ought not to do or not doing things you ought to do, a voice from heaven is telling you from Revelation chapter 18, verse 4, to engage, get on the road to the new Jerusalem, move to that city. Uh, in the book of the Revelation, Spiritual Babylon is uh, ruled over by the great dragon, the great enemy of the church. It's the entire world system that is opposed to God and is idolatrous. And that you and I break off our relationship with that and move to the heavenly city. Uh, it's, it's a spiritual reality that you and I engage versus the physical reality uh, in the book of Isaiah. Let's look at an application of this from John and Revelation. Uh, what ought to define our movement to the new Jerusalem, our leaving the old for the new? Well, Revelation chapter 14 in verse 12 is one application of that text, that reality. Revelation 14, well, here's the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God in their faith in Jesus. They persevere in this life being faithful to God. Persevering in the sense of moving from spiritual Babylon. Uh, perseverance is an evidence that we're moving. Our faith in Christ is an abiding faith, expression of our movement away from the old to the new. That we don't grow comfortable with the world. We don't redefine the scriptures. We don't redefine our duty. We have faith in Christ and we're moving. Moving to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. A couple of great illustrations of this that come again from the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. What's Abraham being told to do? To move. To get out of his country, to get out and to move away from his family. To go to a country that he was shown. Beautiful expression of the life that you and I live. We get out of spiritual Babylon, we move to the heavenly city. A city that God will someday physically reveal to us. But the point of the text of Genesis 12, Abram had to move just like you and I have to move away from things that are displeasing to God to things that please God. And one of the greatest and most sinister difficulties in that movement is you begin to redefine in your own life what that is. Well, I don't have to be faithful to the church. I don't have to engage with God's people. 
I can do thus and such, even though the Bible defines it. Uh, I've, I don't have to persevere. Again, Abraham had to move. God commanded him. Another more intense expression of this, uh, book of Genesis, chapter 19, story that you and I have studied over and over again, but I just simply remind you of the point of movement. Genesis Chapter 19, verses 15 to 17. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Get up. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. We could break that theology upon the church. Move. Get out. But he hesitated. That's you and me, is it not? He hesitated. So the men seized his hand, and the hand of his wife, and the hands of his daughters. For the compassion of the Lord was upon him. They brought him out, put him outside the city. So he's to escape for his life. The grace of God seized him and thrust him out of the city. It's exactly what happens to us. The grace of God seizes us, gives us new life. And... Uh, thrusts us out of the spiritual Babylon. We shake off the old movement. But again, for, for Lot, uh, principally it was geographic. I mean, I'm not undermining the spiritual reality of the Old Testament and the grace of God, but we see it principally there in geographic displacement. Lot had, Lot had grown comfortable in a pagan city with its idolatrous lifestyle. So much so that God mounts an incredible rescue operation to get him out. So he does for us. That's the point of the gospel. He mounts the greatest rescue operation of all time, instituted by Jesus Christ, and we're rescued and set upon a new tract and a new way with a new life, persevering in the faith, lest we be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. Uh, and the spiritual Babylon uh, is going to be destroyed. We move because we know what's going to happen to this world system with all of its idols. And that movement is expressed in being faithful to Christ, faithful to his word, faithful to his people, faithful to the church and the sacraments. I don't know how you might redefine that in your own life, but be very careful. Be very careful about hesitating, of getting comfortable in the world because of the great event of the cross and the resurrection. There's another movement in this text uh, that I find uh, most often in Scripture. Again, we looked at the grace of God in the gospel, that God has been victorious, they can return to Jerusalem. Uh, in New Testament life, uh, God has saved us and broken dominion of sin so we can leave spiritual Babylon. There's always a duty. Well, what's the duty? God has won the victory, leave. And what you will eventually always follow, I think, in my understanding of the New Testament, when you reach and look at spiritual duties, you have another marvelous expression of the grace of God in divine provision. 
God always provisions his people in the midst of their duties to leave and to move to the heavenly city of which we are citizens of. God provisions his people. Isaiah 52 and verse 12. You will not go out in haste, nor will you go as fugitives. That's an allusion, by the way, to the movement out of Egypt, except God changes it. There, they were to leave in haste. They were almost thrust out as fugitives. It's going to be different this time. An allusion to the exodus. But it's going to be different in the second exodus, just as it is different in our exodus. But notice the provision. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Simply the divine promise of the presence of God throughout our spiritual journey on the way to our celestial home. Another repetition. I grant you that. But we need to be reminded that God is with us. You're going to encounter lots of difficulties in life, lots of setbacks, lots of defeats. God is with you, always with you, never leaves you. It's a reminder of the great promises of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you, I'll never desert you. The presence of God, the intractable reminder that in the midst of every issue and affair and location in life, that the God of the Scriptures is with us. In the Old Testament, it was the pillar of fire and the cloud that God led them day and night. In our theology, it's the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit of God leading us, moving us to our heavenly home. Uh, I love the, the phrase in Isaiah 52, I'll go before you and I'll be your rear guard. In that sense, God is their vanguard in front of them and their rear guard behind them. You don't read that in the book of the old book of Exodus. Here it is. God in front and God behind. It's a merism. See the figure of speech? God in front and behind. In other words, God is always with you wherever you are. He's not just in front of you and behind you. He is with you at every point, every step, every engagement of life. His presence is present with you. Beautiful merism encompassing the whole of the front and the behind. Something to me of, of, a, of a military metaphor. Forgive my army background, but uh, generally when divisions move in the field, the cavalry is always in front of them, always to the left of them and always to the right of them, protecting them from being counterattacked and ambushed. So God is with us, protecting us from being ambushed. Uh, evidence of that is we're moving. We're not hesitating. We're not stationary. Uh, we're not saying, hey, Grace Bible Church, you go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll catch up when I have time. See you soon. We walk away from God and his commandments. Now, never forget, throughout all of your life and all of your difficulties, God is your vanguard and your rear guard. And the figure of speech means he's your guard in everything. If he wasn't, guess what? You'd never make it. 
but you will make it. Uh, the great promise of Jesus Christ. He knows his sheep and he will raise them up on the last day. How will he do that? Because he's with us always. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. I don't know your circumstances life. Perhaps some of you are lonely. Well, Christ is with you. I don't discount the uh, painfulness of what it means to be lonely. But I don't discount either the majesty, the presence of Jesus Christ. We go through life, we get defeated and beat up. I understand those are painful events. But God is with you. The Spirit of God is with you. It never leaves you, seeing you through, reminding you to keep moving forward. The greatest is yet to come. God is coming for you. He will right all wrongs. He will make everything good. You will enter into the greatest peace and joy of all time as we move forward. The divine presence. I suspect that most of you can't really embrace the military metaphor. But if you will, God is the cavalry. In front, behind, to your left, and to your right. In fact, he's intermingled at your every step of movement all along the way. The joy, the faith. God moving us, pressing us. Uh, we evidence it as we continue to move forward. We're not like Lot. We don't hesitate. We don't say, you know, angels, I've heard your warning. I think I'm going to stay another couple of weeks in Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm comfortable here. My family's here. My relatives are here. Moving, God seizing Lot and thrusting him out of the city. The grace of God in Jesus Christ seizing us, opening our hearts and moving us out. Spiritual battle. I've told you this before, but I'll say it again in terms of the point of the repetition. The greatest immigration of all time is the church of Jesus Christ leaving the old for the greatest city of all time. And so, the good news of the gospel, God has won. The shackles of sin and its dominion have fallen off of our arms and legs. More importantly, of course, our minds and our attitudes. Comes with a duty. Get out with a beautiful provision. The Spirit of God, our vanguard, our rear guard, to our left and to our right, and with us at every point in the step of the way. As a church, let's keep moving forward. Spiritual Babylon is a dangerous place. Hesitating is a dangerous activity. And so let's encourage one another all the more as the day draws nigh that Christ is with us. He'll raise us up on the last day. Let's embrace that day and rejoice in the good news of the gospel. Be joyful, be messengers, and encourage one another in our great act of immigration that we might manifest to the world that we belong to the great and only God and his people, and he will keep us to the end.